Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I'm interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is Mike Bechtel. Mike is an inventor, investor, the chief futurist at Deloitte, and a professor at the University of Notre Dame. He joins us to paint a picture of life in 2053 with a focus on information technology. In our conversation, Mike talks about how digital information will stream directly over our eyeballs, why artificial intelligence will be a fundamentally transformative technology like the wheel or electricity that we can't imagine living without, and the reasons that blockchain will be essential for establishing trustworthy information. Mike wraps up the conversation by talking about how some of our current behaviors, like our approaches to education and aging, will be looked at in 50 years with a sense of disbelief. Mike, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Don. What a thrill. I'm glad you feel that way. As you know, what we're doing with these Futurist Friday sessions is talking with 12 futurists and forward-thinking leaders about what life is going to be like in the future. And I'm going to give you a choice for painting a picture of what the future looks like. So I'm going to ask you, what does the future look like in 2053 or 2073? Well, you know, Don, I, I used to be an inventor which gave me a front row seat to the art of the possible. And, and then I spent a decade as a VC investor. And, and that's a totally different bailiwick, right? That's all about what's profitable. And, and, and what, what I've tended to learn over the years is that it's that intersection between the possible and the profitable that tends to have legs in the future, right? It's not enough for something to be imaginable. It needs to have traction, to be accretive, sustainable. And so that's all to say, most of the future-facing work that my team and I are focused on has tended to be around technology and within technology, information technology, right? Infotech. Because as shiny and interesting as things like, you know, physical robotics or, you know, space tech, food tech, climate tech, as interesting and eventually as important as those will be, a lot of the, the stuff that's buttered our collective bread over the last 50 years, and, and, and I would hazard over the next 30 tends to be about how we manage information. And so that's all to say, man, the whole history of information technology has been a series of evolutions along three tracks. The way we interact with digital information, the information and insights itself, and then the, 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 the computation layer, the number crunching layer that powers the party. And so finally, drum roll, right? Getting to your core question, the world in 2053, I think from an interaction standpoint, we're going to be bringing our own pixels. We're going to have digital information at the ready, overlaid over our eyeballs all the time. Because straight talk, you know, you look back at a picture from the 1980s and, and you notice all the anachronisms, right? I was doing this with my mom this weekend. And we're looking at family photos and it's like, oh my goodness, it's a Rubik's Cube. Remember those? Like, hey, look at the shed carpeting. It's adorable. Well, I think we're going to look back at pictures of 2023 and say, oh my gosh, look at all the screens. Look at all the glowing rectangle. Don, it's peak screen, right? We're up to our eyeballs in 16 by nine pixel beds. They're everywhere. How many screens do you figure you have in your, in your room right now, brother? Oh, three that I can see. Right. The per capita screen amount in any given group I tend to be with is somewhere between two and four, mm -hmm. right? Because you got, 
You got the phone, you got the other phone, you got the laptop, maybe the tablet, you got the thing on your wrist. Too much of anything is too much. And Da Vinci supposedly said, the greatest sophistication is simplicity. And so we run around fixating on big clunky headsets right now, thinking, like, I don't want to wear a VCR on my face. I don't want to wear a toaster on my head. That's not my future. But, but I think in 2053, we'll look back to big honking headsets as like the eight track tape, right? The mini disc player that bridged the old and the new. Or from that perspective, right? The, 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 the before times and, and the normal, right? Good looking smart glasses, good looking smart contacts. It's going to be the thing, not because it's shiny, not because it's a, a fad to be fetishized, but because, because it's simpler. My question then is, what about attention span? Because at least with a screen, it's, it's fairly intentional. You have to take it out of your pocket. You have to take it off the nightstand. You have to open up the laptop or whatever. But with a contact or with glasses, that's kind of always on. And how do we have real conversations with real people while we we're consuming this or we can't walk away from this information? I, I think that's going to be part of the trillion dollar question. But, you know, time is in some ways the ultimate luxury, right? And when, when people talk about pursuing financial freedom, part of what's imbued in there, I think, is the idea to have control over one's time. I've seen really dystopian visions of what a turned up augmented reality future might be, right? Alerts everywhere, insanity everywhere, right? What's worse than a billboard, a digital billboard that follows your eyeballs around? I think that the, the, the leaders in this space, the winners in this shift are going to be the ones that recognize that our time is sacred and that delivering value in a world where you could show anything all the time is going to have more to do with showing the right things at the right times. And, you know, shades of the old uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm character from Jurassic Park, right? Right. Going back 30 years the other way. Your scientists were so busy asking if they could. They didn't stop to ask if they should. They should. I, yeah. I, I think there's a prescience in that insight. And, and you know, the, the spoils will likely go to those who figure out how to bring a smile and a nuanced, glanceable moment, as opposed to those who go whole hog and break through the wall with noise all the time. So you talked about interact, info, and computation. Do you want to touch on info and computation? If interaction 30 years from now is likely to be a move towards simplicity, right? A, a superset of what we could see with a beautiful, refined subset of, of what we should see, right? I think the information story it is likely to be a story that recognizes that whereas interaction has been a, a, a you know, 150-year move towards simplicity, information has been a 150-year move towards intelligence. Now, one of my big ahas over my 25 years working in newfangled tech, you know, as I, as I transmission in my career from, from geek to geezer, is I've recognized that AI isn't new, right? As, as Larry Tesler, right, the computer scientist from Xerox years ago, uh, he invented copy-paste. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, geek hall of fame, he said, listen, AI is whatever computers can't do yet. And I always get goosebumps when I, when I think about that or, or, or hear that or even repeat it because... In 1956, that was, you know, quadratic equations or something, right? In, in 1996, it was beating a grandmaster in chess. 
I mean, I had a professor. He's like, this will never happen. And then it happens. And he, he doesn't concede. He says, it's not really AI. Okay, well, then, then what is Doc, right? Is it, is, it, is it winning Jeopardy? Right? Is it, is it winning the game of Go? Is it writing a poem? Is it writing a really, really good poem? We tend to doubt the next minor miracle. But then the moment we, we pull it off with a mechanical mind, we dismiss it. Why? Because since 1956, right, the first time the term was coined, we're proud of our digital creations, but we're, we're not so much so that we want to dismiss our pride of place as humans. And so I think part of this, Don, is, is recognizing that in 2053, we're going to have mechanical intelligence that would strike us as miraculous. Specifically, what we're starting to see with generative AI, right, is less of this like OMG, you know, change of kind, you know, black to white, white to black kind of binary switch. When you look over the long span of history, what you say is, wow, we figured out how to take the whole corpus of human knowledge and make it conversational, right? We've, and, and think back 20 years ago with the first search engines, right? Alta Vista and the rest. Oh my goodness, a library of Alexandria. You, you, can, you can find any book. Through that lens, you look at Gen AI and you say, okay, we've turned that on its head and made it one better. You can ask any question. Well, circa 2053, this inexorable, inevitable march towards intelligence will probably feel like, hey, why would, you, why would you think about or ask or recreate any work that's ever been done anywhere before? Because an increasing percentage of all of the things are going to feel like rework. The human colossus has already figured that out. Macro mind has already figured that out. Ask the macro mind for simple answers to known questions. Save our precious human capacity for clever new ideas, clever new questions. In short, Don, 2053, in a world of logarithmically increasing in machine intelligence, it's our responsibility to up our game and say, when we're literally limited only by our creativity and imaginations, what are we going to get busy creating and imagining? I've had a couple of guests talk about AI being our electricity. And you seem to be a student of history as well. And, you know, there's two questions in there. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with the extent to which AI is going to change humanity in the way that electricity has changed humanity, that having that sort of impact? And then the second question is, did people freak out in the way that they seem to be freaking out around <laughs> AI? So I, I do think it, it's a step change, state change that will look back on the the recognition and embrace of AI in much the same way that we'd look at something like the wheel or, or electricity. You mentioned the, the, the penchant for history. I think futurists are secretly historians, right? We, we look at our journey from past to present to understand patterns that can illuminate our understanding of what's possible. And, and reference points too. 100%. Yeah. You know, I, I studied anthropology when I was an undergrad. Okay. And so you get, we, I mean, you get it. I do. No. And it, it's, it's a big high-fiving validation of your insight, Don, that, you know, we talk in anthropology about things like geological time, like the time it takes the Colorado River to niche an inch into the stone. Well, let's mash that up with an idea we use in psychology called the recency effect. 
the last meeting I was in, we talked about X, and so I'm overweighting on X. Well, in geological time, the whole 20th century is the recency effect. We overweight to recent history, even if recent is 100 years. But I think the reason AI stands to be so seminal, despite the quote-unquote recency effect, is because the whole history of not just human technology, of humanity, back to Australopithecus africanus, back to Homo habilis, it's about a primate that developed facility with tools, tools that are a force multiplier, tools that can be used for farming and feeding, aka for good, tools that can be used for weapons and war, aka for bad. But the tool is ultimately a force multiplier, whether it's the stone wheel, fire, electricity, the printing press, or in this case, AI, which is a recognition that we're starting to figure out how to automate and force multiply human discernment and decision-making. Holy smokes, the moment before us, the uniquely human challenge is to what end? If it's the George Jetson end of feet on the desk in a one-hour workday, well, that's, that's one extreme. But on the flip side, if it's even more, you know, EBITDA, period, that, that might not be it either. And so I think, I think the, the, the responsibility before us is to what end, to what higher order pursuit? And, and that's going to remain a uniquely human problem. What are we going to do with these wonderful tools? We've talked about interact information. Do you want to talk about computation before we get into what yeah. people are going to be shaking their heads at in, in the future about what we're doing today? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I mean, you know, on the computation front, honestly, Moore's Law has had a heck of a run, right? For, for nearly a century, it's been a, the headline has been better, faster, cheaper, smaller. And you know, somewhere around 10, 15 years ago, you started to see miniaturization give way to sort of virtualization, parallelization. Remember when gigahertz sort of stopped being talked about and it was about cores? And what's that? Well, it's like seven of them in a row. Oh, okay. Well, that further scaled became the cloud story, right? You got all the illities, elasticity, versatility, you know, flexibility, you name it. Well, through that lens, what you're starting to see really is that computation has been a journey towards abundance, about pulling rabbits out of a hats in ways that allow us to do more with less, in ways that allow us to create answers that scale faster than our problems. In short, the big thing we see Lumen for our research is it's the B word, right? But when you say blockchain, the B word, people's eyes kind of, you know, B word has an image problem. They had the weird pseudonymous founding. It had the series of, you know, dark web moments. Then you had the, you know, recent ups and downs with crypto. But, but through this lens of history, the reason I think that decentralized computation platforms are so compelling and will become de rigueur right, or normal by 2053, is that there's a bit of a recognition that none of us is as trustworthy as all of us. That like years ago, you had a computer, I had a computer, whose was true? I don't know, right? It was, it was you know, dueling banjos. And then you got to client server and cloud where you still have big corporations playing the role of truth teller, oracle arbiter. But we're kind of getting to this moment in history, thanks to AI and simplicity as discussed, where when you can't trust your own eyes, you can no longer get by with the Gen X platitude of like, picks or it didn't happen, right? Picks or it didn't happen, bro. I need to see it with my own eyes. Well, in a world of deep fakes and Gen AI, we, that, that doesn't even work. And so what we're starting to see is sort of this, this notion of chain 
or it didn't happen, right? If it's not on a certifiable, all of us are the arbiter of truth kind of a frame, then can we really trust it? And so 2053, I think we'll think less of individual computers and more about the computer, the globally networked truth box that does the math and proves it happened. And then gradually, right? You know, it's, it's been five years away for the last 15 years. But when quantum is ready, the idea of getting past digital and into post-digital, I, I think that one-two punch, that left hook, right jab will be the, the 2053 basis for, for trustworthy computing. That's a wild future. I mean, Don, it's, it's interesting days because for 25 years, we've seen the pendulum move towards deep specialization. STEM skills, what kind? Math, what kind of math? Financial math, what for? Banking, like, like it's a niche, niche, niche. I think in a world where mechanical intelligence delivers so much of the decision-making and the craft that, that what we're going to find is that tomorrow's leaders are going to be asked to ask better questions, have more creative ideas. And to your point with your, with your daughters, right? It's less about learning Spanish. It's more about learning how to learn a new language, how to engage with a different culture, et cetera. It sounds squishy and meta, but in some ways it's the pendulum moving back towards the classical liberal arts education. Polymaths, right? Renaissance folks. I think that's going to be the new must-have skill in a world where, you know, your, your financial analyst is more likely to be automated than your generative specialist generalist. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great, great point. And I love looking into the future, but I, I love history as well. And one of the things that disappoints me about how many of us are behaving today is that we are judging the past based on the mores, based on the laws, based on social conventions of today. And I won't get into what those behaviors are, but you know, in 2023, I think it's unfair to judge the past, you know, based on where we are today. So right. I think it would be fun to look out into the future. So let's, let's look at 2073. And what are humans shaking their head at in disbelief that humans are doing today in 2023? Oh man, what a fun, what a fun and, and I think useful question. I think education, I think we'll look at rows and columns of seats in a room receiving facts as about a hundred years out of date. Because, you know, that, that was itself an innovation built in response to the industrial rev revolution, right? Like let, let's, let's set up the schoolhouse, like the, the auto factory, right? It made sense for about 15 years and we're still doing it. So I think we'll look back at like school used to be arbitrarily learning facts and, and imagine a future person saying, but, but the global computer has the facts. Yes, Johnny. Yes, it does. So that's one. Two, I think health. You know, there is fascinating work being done right now by leading scientists who are starting to realize that aging is and should be thought of more like a disease and that that disease can be treated, maybe even cured. And so th this idea of people live 100 years of which 60 are quality and the rest is a mess, I think in 2073, we'll look back at that and say, oh my goodness gracious, if they only knew that you could manage or potentially reverse aging by treating it as a computer science and information management problem. I think eating meat, and, and to be honest with you, you know, I eat meat, I'm not veg, but I think you know, language is powerful. And when you talk about eating meat, okay, that's one thing, but I suspect 50 years from now, we'll say, okay, what we need is protein and we want the protein to be delicious. And you have two choices. 
you could have this synthetically created something or you could eat a sentient being's muscles. With that simple language reframe, I know which one I'm going for. Now there's change management and psychology and sociology and culture in there. And, but I think 50 years from now, we'll look back and say, they used to eat animals' muscles? Yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? And then all the minor miracles we're seeing today around pixels and bits, information management, AI, as discussed, I suspect we're going to have a moment where that magic starts to apply to atoms. And, you know, science fiction tends to be a useful guide because it, back to our discussion about polymaths, it helps you ask, what if? You know, whether it's, it's Star Trek with their replicators or Neil Stevenson with his lesser known book, I think we'll look back and, and, and sort of marvel at what will, to their sensibilities, feel like profound inefficiencies in the making of things. And so that's my series of hunches, man. Bi biology as information science, atoms and stuff, getting the pixels and bits treatment, and maybe finding leaner, meaner, and ethically cleaner ways to get our protein needs met. If those are all good, and I, I can't disagree with any of them. When I think about education, I went on a, a trade mission with the governor of Minnesota 15 years ago, and he talked about how anachronistic the education system was then. So that was 2008. And we haven't changed a ton. I will say that both my daughters got a Montessori education. And what has blown me away from that, that experience is just how emotionally intelligent they are. <laughs> when, whenever I kind of not lose my cool, but deviate from what I should be thinking about, my seven-year-old will say, daddy, let's just check where we are right now. And I'm just like, <laughs> whoa. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. And then with the help. I don't know if you saw this episode that I did with Sergey Young, but he's a venture capitalist. He started this $100 million longevity venture fund. And we talked about the 200-year life. He believes he's 51. He believes he'll live to 200. I, I said to him, I'm 54. If I can make it to 70, I think 120 is a layup. And he said, yeah, absolutely. So I, I completely agree with you there. And I'm aware of David Sinclair and, and some of the work that he's doing and, and others are doing around treating aging as a, as a disease. And nobody was talking about that. Nobody who was received or perceived as credible was talking about that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But that's just a common conversation that's happening. And then with the eating thing, I believe I don't know by 50 years, but I believe we'll be communicating with other mammals in a pretty significant way. And so the idea of eating them, by the way, they're going to have a lot of grievances. So, <laughs> so we're going to have to go through some therapy with these mammals and just, like, well, tell me how you're feeling. Well, you know, when you did. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have a bone to pick with y'all. No, we got a lot of atoning to do. So, but I, I think this is this is really, really interesting and exactly what I was looking for. Mike, thank you for your time today and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week when I interview futurist and author Kevin Kelly, who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.